This is an all new episode of the Vitamin SC3 podcast. Today, we are listening to the Essential RX segment with Dr. Lemitra Scott. Her guest today is Dr. Ted Kiefer, and we're going to find out if there is a universal cure on the horizon. Today's show is the SCD cure. It's in your genes. The Vitamin SC3 podcast is designed to give you more insight into the real lives of sickle cell warriors and their families. You will learn why we are bonded by blood with shared life experiences. So remember, the information shared on the Vitamin SC3 podcast is for informational or educational purposes only and does not substitute professional medical advice or consultations with your healthcare provider. The Vitamin SC3 podcast is powered by the Sickle Cell Community Consortium. To become a member of the Sickle Cell Community Consortium, visit sicklecellconsortium.org. The Sickle Cell Consortium is a collaborative designed a little bit like the United Nations in theory, so that we can bring together many organizations for sickle cell throughout the country and now throughout the world, as well as um, independent patient caregiver leaders, opinion leaders, advocates, those that are active in this space. And our goal is what we've always done is bring our community together so that we can create projects, priorities, initiatives. We can figure out what are the problems, needs, and gaps in the sickle cell community, and then figure out how we're going to collectively address this. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for listening and tuning in today to the Vitamin SC3 podcast. Today, we have an exciting conversation that we will be talking about, and it's related to the cure. We all want to know, when will there be a universal cure for people who have sickle cell disease? We've all heard about the bone marrow transplant, and right now, in clinical trials and in research, we've heard about gene therapy, we've heard about cell therapy, but to many of us, we may not really know exactly what those things entail. We understand that it, it leads to a cure, but exactly what does all that even mean? So today we have a special guest, Dr. Ted Kiefer joining us, who will explain to us what exactly is going on behind all those big words and big terminology. Dr. Ted Kiefer is an American Board of Pathology certified clinical pathologist and transfusion medicine specialist with specialized training in clinical microbiology. He received his medical school residency and fellowship training at Indiana University and Indiana University Hospitals Pathology Program. Dr. Kiefer has worked in medical reimbursement as a senior healthcare consultant and associate professor and medical director with West Virginia University and Hospital Systems and cell and gene therapy medical director with a local Tennessee nonprofit blood center. He is engaged in several national and international societies and currently sits on the VSR PDA Apheresis Collection for Cell and Gene Therapy Products Standards Committee, the International Society for Cell and Gene Therapies Laboratory Professionals Committee, and was recently offered the appointment to the Tennessee State Board of Medical Laboratory as a pathologist representative. So with that being said, now that's a lot, to a lot of accolades, Dr. Kiefer. Yeah, sorry to give you the mouthful uh, there, but I uh, wanted to make sure that I present credibility uh, to to your viewers and your listeners. Uh, I'm I'm always trying my best to stay on top of new and interesting topics, uh, and cell and gene therapy is probably the most new and interesting topic uh, out there. But thank you so much for the invitation. I'm happy to be here and, and happy to speak with you. Uh, just to frame my um, work with sickle cell disease, so the transfusion medicine specialists are the ones that uh, ensure that blood products are safe uh, for sickle cell patients. Uh, I mean, we do a lot of work to recruit individuals for uh, the symptomatic relief of cell in, or for, uh, of sickle cell disease. Unfortunately, um, as a transfusion medicine specialist, we can only provide symptomatic relief. Relief we can't provide a cure. Uh, but that's why I'm here to talk about what the next phases are and what the next steps are to to lead us towards a cure because this is a devastating disease. Uh, I, I've seen uh, patients go through numerous exchanges uh, have. Uh, really bad um, consequences of the disease from strokes to uh, acute chest syndrome, um, you know, to long-term consequences in organ failure. Uh, so I'm, uh, 
and sickle cell disease is near and dear to my heart. Um, it, it's such a, a devastating disease on so many levels and it affects, you know, children and adults all, all ages. Um, so you, everybody here knows that, but, uh, I just, I want to <laughs> reflect, uh, and, and, um, share my, my perspective and, and my care and desire to care for these patients. And I want you to know that we in the sickle cell community, we appreciate you because it's going to take advocates in all aspects from all walks of life, continually pushing the message forward for continuing to do research, for continuing to find curative therapies. We need all the help we can get, basically. So thank you for the interest that you have in the sickle cell community and the work that you do in helping those the right now, you know, that may that you may come in contact with or come across. So we want to get started today talking about, you know, where we stand with the cure and just basic foundations here. We've heard about bone marrow transplants. We've heard about stem cell transplants and we've heard about gene and cell therapy. Can you break that down on a basic level to just explain to us what is going on when a person is having a bone marrow transplant and what makes that different from the process of gene or cell therapy? Of course. Uh, happy to do that. So when you think about bone marrow transplants, um, you need to get the cells sourced from somewhere. Uh, and a bone marrow, so that your bone marrow is what makes your cells uh, within your blood. Um, so it if, it, if you happen to have an individual that has sickle cell disease, the cells that it makes, the red blood cells that it makes are affected by the sickle cell gene, uh, which is um, uh, a beta uh, globin within the, 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 heme, uh, the hemoglobin uh, within the red cells, which is what's responsible for carrying the blood. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's the pathology. As a pathologist, I need to kind of reinforce that, uh, that uh, a person with sickle cell disease has defective uh, red cells that break down relatively quickly. Um, so there's a chronic anemia associated with it. Uh, you know, they, they malform uh, when in low oxygen situations, which is what you have in your capillaries. So uh, they will get sticky uh, in, in your capillaries and uh, in the capillaries are your end blood supply uh, within your organs uh, and prevent blood from flowing. So you'll have uh, tissue damage from low oxygen. Uh, so the idea in a bone marrow transplant is you take out the the marrow that makes the cells that are pathologic and you replace it with cells uh, that are not pathologic. So you don't have all these disease consequences. Um, but there's a problem with bone marrow transplants. Your, your marrow has to match the rest of your body because uh, your marrow also holds um, a fair amount of your immune cells. So your immune cells are what recognize self versus non-self. Self, self uh, is every you know tissue you have in your body. Non-self is um, you know viruses, bacteria, uh, the, the things that, you know, make you unhealthy, uh, that are infectious. Uh, so when, uh, taking, uh, when considering a marrow transplant, you need to identify an individual that is very similar to you, um, to change out, uh, the marrow cells, the red cell producing, um, cells within your body. And that's not always very easy. Uh, so, um, there's, uh, proteins on the surface of your cells that say, you know, this, the cell shouldn't be here. The cell, you know, has been here for a long time, so uh, it needs to remain. Uh, when you get somebody else's marrow, that cell could look very different um, unless there's a lot of work done up front to ensure that there's similarity between the cells. Um, so if that cell looks different, your body's just going to break it down and destroy it. Uh, I mean, it's that's what the immune system's responsibility is. Um, you can move more towards a, um, a sibling, uh, which has a higher compatibility of being identical or, or very similar uh, from a marrow perspective. But with that, you have higher risk of uh, an individual that has a similar pathology. So uh, your siblings have a higher risk of sickle cell disease um, if, if you happen to have sickle cell disease. So it makes it even more difficult to identify an individual. Your, your parents uh, usually aren't affected by sickle cell disease. If you have sickle cell disease, they're usually carriers. Um, so there is a possibility from you know an, a parent um, transplanting into a uh, a child. But again, there's dissimilarities. Um, there's lifetime immunosuppression uh, that has to go along with that if there's dissimilarities. Um, and then there's, um, you know, the, the fact that the marrow that's present that has the bad cells in it needs to be wiped out. Uh, so there's a heavy um, myeloablative chemotherapy approach to this. Okay, stop right there. Before <clears throat> our, our, I want our listening audience to be able to follow where we are thus far. So we talked about 
where the the marrow could come from. It could come from a parent or it could come from a sibling. We need to get rid of the marrow that's bad to replace it with marrow that's new. And then you just touched on the term that said myeloablative. Can -hmm. you explain what that means to our listening community? Certainly. Uh, So um, that's a chemotherapy. Uh, So usually when you hear of chemotherapy, you think of it uh, being a drug associated with uh, malignancy or cancer. Uh, So chemotherapy is a a drug, a, a bio, or a therapeutic that um, uh, eliminates um, replicating cells, uh, and your bone marrow is full of highly replicative cells. Uh, cancer tends to be full of very highly replicable cells. So, replicative cells is are cells that divide, uh, and your marrow is full of cells that divide to to make more um, red cells for you. Ultimately, uh, so if you want to eliminate the cells that are pathologic, or if you want to eliminate the cells that make sickle cells, then you have to destroy the, the highly replicable cells within the bone marrow. Uh, and that's what we call myeloablative uh, chemotherapy. So it wipes out your whole um, you know, red cell making capacity. It wipes out your platelet making capacity. It wipes out your immune system uh, capacity. So oh. it can be a pretty devastating uh, uh, therapeutic. Uh, I mean, it's still a therapeutic because its end result is to you know, improve the health outcomes of the individual, but it's, it can be very rough. I can only imagine. I know we've heard a number of stories from sickle cell warriors who have attempted to go through the bone marrow transplant process and it didn't work. So everything that you've described thus far in terms of how detailed and how involved it is one would think that by going through this process, surely it would end up in a cure. But why is that? Why is it that when some people go through the bone marrow transplant process that it doesn't work? Yeah. Uh, so the the grafting uh, is what you're referring to. So if, if the bone marrow transplant doesn't take, uh, we call that a fail in gra- failed engraftment. Um, there's multiple reasons for it. Uh, it can be the number of cells that are collected um, and infused into the individual. Um, it can be uh, difficulty at adhering to uh, immune suppressive um, uh, regimens uh, that individuals are on. Um, and then there's a lot that we don't fully understand uh, about why a marrow doesn't take. Um, and usually when there's um, uh, a transplant, uh, you have clinicians following you on a regular basis uh, and they can modify the uh, therapeutic uh, regimen that you're on. So the immune suppressive drugs that you're on, if they see that your marrow uh, is failing. Um, but uh, ultimately there's little that we can do once it starts failing. Uh, I mean, it, it's not a natural process, right? Um, taking right. somebody else's cells and putting it in somebody else's body um, or in another person's body isn't natural. So any non-natural process is going to have uh, drawbacks uh, and it takes a long time in science to figure out what those are. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And we we don't want to deter people from the bone marrow transplant process. It's just good, I think, to be fully informed of what Mm -hmm. you are considering and what you may get yourself into and just be forewarned, you know, what the outcomes could or could not be. So we've talked about bone marrow transplant, and that's been the only curative therapy for a very long time. Until here recently in the news, there's been a lot of research and talk about gene therapy and cell therapy and cell editing. So Mm -hmm. can you help us lay the foundation as to where we are right now in research and what do these curative therapies bring to the table that's different from the bone marrow transplant process? Sure. I'd be happy to do that. So we are in a very interesting and exciting time uh, for cell and gene therapy editing. Uh, The first uh, clinically approved or FDA approved oncologic treatments, so cancer treatments uh, for cell and gene therapy have been on the market since about um, 2012, 2015. Uh, So, I mean, we're still within the first decade of these therapies being uh, clinically available. Uh, And because, you know, this, this, uh, gene editing software or gene editing reprogrammable um, proteins are are so um, diverse and capable of doing so many different things. It makes sense to expand it outside of oncology into uh, congenital diseases uh, and sickle cell being one of the congenital diseases. Um, Sickle cell, uh, it's very known what, or very well known uh, within the medical community, what causes it. It's that 
uh, abnormal beta globin uh, chain uh, within the hemoglobin. Uh, it's a, just a single point mutation in many cases, not all cases, but um, if we can, a point mutation, uh, so within your DNA, you have different base pairs uh, that are kind of the reading frame uh, for what tells your body how to make uh, what it needs to make to survive. Um, one of those um, is just off in sickle cell disease. Um, well, uh, both of them are off on, on the chromosome. So you have at least two uh, mutations uh, within your uh, genetic sequence. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's as simple as, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, reading uh, a line in a, um, uh, in, in text, right? So, I mean, if you get one letter off, I mean, it can completely change uh, the message that you're trying to send. Uh, it's the same in uh, your DNA. So if, if one letter's off, then you can completely change uh, what the body's supposed to be doing. Because of that, uh, we can actually use um, sequence identifying proteins uh, that are actually bacterial-based uh, immune systems. Uh, so it helps the bacteria fight off um, viruses that would infect and destroy their cells. And we can actually use the sequence identifying uh, proteins to, to identify the sequence where there's uh, an error uh, within genetic sequence, break the DNA and insert uh, the right sequence in there, or the, the non-pathologic sequence. Um, I mean, this has all been developing over the past uh, 30, 40 years, uh, moving from, you know, very basic uh, proteins that don't really know where they're breaking um, the DNA to very specific sequences like CRISPR-Cas9 that you can identify specific sequences, um, make that double, stamp, double strand break in the DNA, and then insert what you need to. Um, it, it, it's been a learning process. Um, a lot of people recognize early gene and cell therapy from the SCID trials. Um, so, um, uh, so that's uh, an immune disease uh, where you can modify an enzyme and, and help the pathology uh, with that enzyme that prevents people from having an immune system. Uh, but there were some really negative consequences with those trials. Um, some of the patients, uh, unfortunately, a large percentage of the patients uh, in one of the uh, Wiscott uh, Aldrich trials uh, wound up with hematologic disease because we weren't using a very specific uh, protein um, to insert the sequence where we know it needed to be. We were inserting randomly. Uh, and because of that, we were generating uh, cancer uh, within individuals. Um, yeah. Uh, but we've come a long way since there. And uh, actually, as devastating as that is, those clinical trials that um, resulted in hematologic disease or cancer uh, helped us better understand cancer biology and develop the, the immune therapies that were um, the, the PD-1 uh, inhibitors that are actually helping us to fight cancer right now. So, I mean, those early trailblazers um, uh, helped us advance disease uh, uh, understanding and awareness uh, and helped people moving forward, which is unfortunately a consequence of research uh, sometimes. Um, but, uh, I mean, our, our trials are designed to uh, eliminate that possibility as best we can. Um, but there's always going to be risk. Uh, unfortunately, you have to understand the risk and, and balance that against um, right. what's important to you and, um, and you know, what you're dealing with uh, currently if you're going to enter into a clinical, clinical trial. Uh, there's multiple clinical trials ongoing uh, for different means by which to um, uh, cure sickle cell disease. Uh, um, BEAR trial or BAER um, is one of them off the top of my head. Um, and in, this is going to be a high target moving forward. Uh, I mean, sickle cell disease is a, a lifelong disease. Um, it impacts the blood supply. Um, you know, it impacts patients' lifestyles. It's, it's, it's a great target um, to, you know, improve health, health outcomes within a community. Okay. And if you need to cut me off, please do. I, I tend to get... No, 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 you're fine. I think that this is all very interesting. And I really, um, I really wanted your input on what these things mean because you're not tied to any particular pharma company and no. you can give us the real nitty gritty on what it means to participate in a clinical trial that's using a CRISPR therapeutic or that's using Cas9 without the the, the added pressure of wanting to sell a product. 
So cool. that was my main reason why I wanted to talk to you because I knew that you were very well versed in this area and you could provide the the bare scientific bones of what's going on during these processes. And you talked about gene editing and that involves, you know, cutting out the part of the DNA sequence that's coded the wrong way and inserting the right code in the right location with the intent of remedying or fixing the sickle cell issue and not causing another issue with, you know, is the main goal. So Mm -hmm. what about when we talk about gene therapy or when we talk about the, the lentiglobin process, because with that one, I think it was by Bluebird Bio and it's been all in the news that their process at one point in time, the clinical trials had to be halted because participants had developed cases of of, uh, leukemia. Mm -hmm. So what makes that process different from a gene editing process? Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, gene editing um, uh, is more of a systemic approach. Uh, So you actually infect the whole individual with a virus and you hope that that virus has specificity for uh, the region that has uh, disease uh, or pathology. Um, I mean, there's consequences associated with that, and it's not very well um, pursued and utilized uh, clinically uh, because, I mean, you're, you're giving somebody a virus, um, and uh, it's very difficult to engineer that particular virus um, in a full in vivo situation. So in vivo means in person, essentially. Uh, there's just a lot of factors in play uh, that would result in potential elimination of the virus. So you give that to an individual, um, you know, our jobs as bodies is to stop viruses. Uh, so you, you give that to somebody and um, if it's immunogenic enough, then you know, you'll clear it out and that limits the amount of um, actual genetic material inserted into the, the correct sequence uh, in the correct place. Um, and there can be other uh, consequences associated with that. Um, the, the cell therapy is a similar process, but it's ex vivo, so outside of the person uh, where you have a limited um, uh, cell set and you control the environment a little bit better, uh, where you can actually transfect the cells. Um, so going back to the, you know, the lentiviral vector, um, that's utilized. I mean, that's been advanced, uh, from, uh, retroviral vectors. Uh, so retroviral vectors are those vectors that were used. So vector being a virus that actually carries genetic material, um, in a clinical trial. Uh, the retroviral vectors were the ones that were originally used in those, um, uh, uh, clinical trials back in the 80s uh, that I just referenced, the SCID trials, the Wisconsin-Aldrich trials, we knew that retrovirals uh, or retroviruses could change um, their RNA to DNA and then insert that DNA into uh, our host DNA. So it seemed like a reasonable approach to, to take those individuals and just take those viruses and, uh, you know, approach individuals with them to get the genetic sequence inserted. Um, unfortunately, there's no control on over where it's inserted uh, within the, the sequencer. There's a relative amount of control, but not great control, which is why we had the negative uh, consequences with the hematologic malignancies. Um, viral vectors have come a long way since that time. Uh, the lentiviral vectors um, that we utilize now uh, contain, you know, the very specific uh, uh, sequence identifying um, uh, RNA uh within the Casper Cas9 so that we can you know, very specifically insert um, into the region of interest. Um, there's other viral vectors that are utilized, um, adenoviral vectors or adenoviral associated vectors that don't actually insert into the host genome. Um, but for a long-term um, solution, those really aren't ideal uh, because they'll just have a plasmid that could be cleared out um, later on down the line. Um, okay. So, I mean, there's definitely some changes uh, that have occurred uh, that allows the lentiviral vector to be utilized right now uh, in a more safe mechanism, but that doesn't mean that our alert shouldn't be very high, right? Um, uh, so, uh, you know, the it, it's well documented uh, that there's uh, hematologic malignant transformation associated with uh, cell therapy, um, cell and gene therapy. Mm-hmm. So why shouldn't we stop the trial uh, quickly when we realize that there's a potential here? The, the catch-22 um, is that sickle cell disease is a um, highly inflammatory disease. Anytime you have uh, inflammatory disease, you increase your risk of malignancy. Um, so 
the higher your inflammatory state, the faster your cells are replicating. Uh, unfortunately, every cell, when it replicates or doubles, doubles um, is error prone. Uh, so uh, the more inflammation you have, the higher risk you have of malignancy. When we design, and we, I mean, just in the general medical community, uh, mm -hmm. clinical trials are typically designed to attack late stage disease. We see it in malignancy uh, where pharmaceutical companies design a trial to target end stage disease because you can get a shorter timeline that shows clinical benefits to get your market uh, drug out to market a little bit quicker. Um, if you choose a disease process that you know, takes 10, 20, 30 years to manifest like sickle cell disease and you um, target children uh, and see what their health outcomes are, you're now waiting 20, 30, 40 years to actually right. see when the benefit uh, is or if the benefit lasts that long. And that's just a very difficult process uh, for pharmaceutical companies to take if they're trying to get you know, revenue from the drug that they're developing. And they need to have revenue from the drug that they're developing so that they can um, disperse it, uh, you know, develop new uh, drugs in the pipeline. Uh, so some of it's financial driven. Um, and I can break down the, the phases of clinical trials a little bit also. Um, uh, so well, I mean, before we get to going that far, you brought up a good point that I really wanted to kind of understand in terms of at what phase in the sickle cell journey does one pursue a cure? Because right now, the cure, whether it be participating in a clinical trial or if it is related to the bone marrow transplant process, it's always seemingly reserved for those patients who have very severe prognosis right now. Mm -hmm. And for those patients who have sickle cell disease that may not have as many problems or hospitalizations, it's really not marketed towards that group of people, which I really didn't understand initially in terms of if somebody has sickle cell disease, we know that it's going to get worse. Why do these patients have to be on their last leg almost before a curative therapy is offered to pursue? Uh, so I, it's personally, I find that to be one of the you know, most devastating um, consequences of our healthcare system. Um, and it, it's, it's been designed like that for a long time, or, or my impression that it's been designed like that for a long time. Um, I mean, we're doing our best to change that. But um, from a financials perspective, uh, I mean, when we think of the payers who are paying for these disease processes, um, I mean, if I had sickle cell disease and I was paying for the sickle cell disease um, out of my pockets uh, and I was, you know, assessing the different outcomes, uh, it all depends on where I am in my financial like state. Right. I mean, if I'm if I'm young um, or if I'm a family with multiple children, and I'm worried about you know, paying for college. I'm paying for uh, you know, groceries and I'm, and I'm paying for you know gas at this point in time. Um, do I have a large sum of resources to, to put towards cell and gene therapy. And cell and gene therapy, like I said, is very new still. Uh, so it's um, not inexpensive. Uh, the, the market for cell and gene therapy is upwards of $300,000, uh, $400,000 for a single dose. Again, it's curative, um, but potentially curative. Uh, I mean, we're still learning and our, our clinical trials are showing that it can be curative. Um, but I mean, do you have that resource available right now to, to do that? Or, you know, does paying for hydroxyurea for the next five, 10 years where you're actually not in a severe disease state, your, your organs aren't failing. Um, you know, you don't have regular crises, uh, cause you're relatively young and your the inflammatory state hasn't built up. Um, but you know, uh, how, how much does hydroxyurea cost for the next 30, 40 years? Um, how much do these new monoclonal antibodies, um, you know, that, uh, attack the inflammation or, uh, increase the oxygen combining capacity of hemoglobin cost um, to, you know, meet that equivalent point. Um, to me, it makes sense for, um, you know, a curative disease so that you can prevent some of the sequelae, um, you know, early on. Uh, so sequelae being, you know, processes of negative processes associated with the disease because um, there are long-term aspects or long-term effects associated with uh, heightened uh, immune response. We talked on some of them already. Um, so increased risk of malignancy. Um, but each person has to be comfortable with that step, right? And, and has to have the resources available uh, and has to have the access to people that can tell them 
what options are available. One, we're limited on access. Two, a lot of people are limited on these resources. Three, uh, we don't have a lot of long-term consequences or results from early stage treatment of these individuals yet. Um, and w- when you're not, um, it, when you're a parent, I mean, you're, you're, your son has sickle cell disease um, and you're thinking about the long-term effects of a cure, but also the long-term consequences of a new therapy that, you know, has only been on the market for a couple of years. When do you start asking the the questions? When do you start engaging with the right individuals that can get you uh, that disease uh, treatment um, or cure um, varies from person to person. I think as time moves forward and as we develop more, uh, more benefit uh, from some of these, um, uh, cell and gene therapies, uh, that, that will shift a little bit towards a younger age. Um, as healthcare professionals, if we do a better job of reducing the cost of these by, you know, not, um, localizing the modification of these cells. So, I mean, we talked about the ex vivo, I said ex vivo, you know, outside of the cell. So, I mean, these cells have to come out of the individual, um, who has sickle cell disease. They have to go to a factory, like basically a cell factory where they get modified and then come back to get infused. Um, there's ways that we can shorten that window. There's ways that we can decrease that cost by decentralizing it. Uh, so in the coming years, uh, and hopefully we can cut these prices in a half, uh, if not more. Um, but that's not right now. Right. Uh, so, um, that changes everybody's perspective, uh, when they're, um, you know, making this decision. And, uh, as a parent, um, would I jump right on it? Um, maybe not, uh, the, Back to, um, you know, the phases of clinical trials. I mean, we start in mouse models. Uh, so, I mean, we test things in animals that aren't human, so we can't identify all the uh, consequences of it. Um, then we move to phase one, which is basically just safety. Uh, can we give this to somebody and not have a short window of, um, you know, disease or death associated with it? Um, and those are really small numbers. So, I mean, a phase one clinical trial is probably highest risk. Um, but I mean, if it's a curative therapy, then that's, that's pretty amazing. Uh, phase two, uh, now we have a couple of years of data probably, uh, where we're targeting, uh, more, how do we dose this and does it actually work, um, against the disease process as opposed to whether or not it's just safe. Uh, and then phase three, uh, you know, these are larger, uh, clinical trials, um, larger numbers of people, but now there's, you know, multiple years of data to support, the use of this particular therapy. Uh, so phase three clinical trials are a little less of a risk. Uh, can you find that phase three trial though? Do you have the community to support that, you know, your, your hematologist, um, uh, you know, is engaged with the, the right, um, partners to bring that therapy, uh, to bear on his patients or her patients. Um, and then phase four is beyond that. So it's basically approved. Everybody thinks that everything's going to be fine, but we're going to look at the long-term consequences. Uh, so getting involved in a phase four trial makes it even lower risk. But again, you're waiting, you're waiting for that data to be generated so that you can actually make a conscious, um, uh, you know, evidence-based decision on what's best for you and your family. Okay. So let me sum this up based off, off of what you said in terms of when may be, an appropriate time to look at curative therapy. First and foremost, it's always going to be a risk versus benefit type of situation. So it's always going to be variable based upon the condition of the patient. So if you have a patient that has severe disease, that may have had multiple strokes, that may have decreases in quality of life, and you know they're dealing with organ failure or you know on the brinks of it, that may be someone who is looking at a curative therapy option more closely than a person who has sickle cell disease and they are able to be maintained basically with using one of the therapeutic agents that are available today, like hydroxyurea or your oxprida or your adacvio or your indari, something to that effect is able to maintain them where they're not experiencing the severe sequelae while they may still experience pain episodes, you know, every now and again, or from time to time, their seriousness of their sequelae is not the same as a person who may have all of the the organ issues and strokes and things of that nature. So when we talk about looking at a curative therapy, 
that person that's having a more severe state would be the person to want to look at, you know, what may be a good option for them. Even then, when you take that road, now you're looking at risk versus benefit. Not only will you get a cure from this, you know, it, it just depends, but also the additional issues that may come about as a result of participating in this particular clinical trial or going through something like a bone marrow transplant, you have to be forewarned that you may be trading one issue for another. But again, it's, you know, which one is more likely to improve your quality of life um, Mm -hmm. after going through the process. So at this point in time, it seems like we're in an exciting phase where there's a lot of research that is being done in this space, but the information is still relatively brand new. And we, uh, what we call it in the community is watch and wait. We're in the watch and wait phase of, you know, clinical trials are happening. We are watching to see what happens as an end result. And unfortunately, we can't push the fast forward button on this. We have to to let time take its course, as they say. And, you know, hopefully we get the benefit that we're looking for on the back end. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I, do I agree wanna... completely. Um so uh, just to add a caveat or two. Um, so, I mean, uh, research favors the bold. Um, it always has uh, and always will. Um, but I mean, the, the appetite for boldness, um, you know, again, is relative to where you are in your life uh, and, and who you care about. Um, the cell and gene therapy um, uh, arena or market has been advanced rapidly uh, by some very bold um uh, individuals and family members who, but I mean, consequently aren't in the same location uh, or same, um, you know, disease state as a sickle cell disease individual, right? There's other therapies for sickle cell disease. Uh, the one of the ones that I think about as most, um, uh, with most notoriety in this is Emily Whitehead. Uh, so, I mean, she was a six-year-old girl, um, had two relapses of uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So like one of the worst uh, leukemia is to have most children, uh, you know, uh, clear this disease with the current chemotherapeutics. Uh, but uh, she went through two bouts uh, of chemo and it recurred. Uh, so, I mean, she was on her deathbed and her parents had no other choice. Uh, right. People look at her as a pioneer in this uh, because she was the first pediatric patient to receive cell and gene therapy for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And now she's 10 years cured. Um, but take that into perspective, right? I mean, my daughter, when she was six, um, if she was on death's doorstep, uh, there's any number of things that I would have done uh, for her. Um, uh, I mean, if she was a a sickle cell patient who didn't have uh, much uh, limitations in her physical activity, um, you know, or she was managing it pretty well because I was there and available for her, um, then why would I go for something so, so dire and, um, or so, so, potentially, um, dire. Um, but the, you know, the, that, that willingness or that ability to, you know, take that initiative, uh, to advance the science, um, you'll, you'll hear Emily Whitehead's family talk about this. If you ever look them up, they say, you know, that's one of the reasons why we pursued research, uh, for our daughter. Um, you know, the frame is, you know, she didn't have many options, but if we pursued this research and it didn't work, at least there was something that was learned for the next generations. Um, and if you're late in your disease process and sickle cell disease, then a phase one clinical trial to learn from it and maybe help, you know, your children, because if you have sickle cell disease, there's a higher probability that your children will have sickle cell disease, mm-hmm. um, you know, benefit from what science has learned from you uh, in the process. It's a difficult pill to swallow. And I'm not saying it's for everybody, but, um, Right. Uh, uh, I, I just want to send a shout out of appreciation to uh, the participants in clinical trials, um, hopefully for positive reasons um, and uh, helped us advance uh, the science. Right. Same with I'm very thankful, very thankful for those who participate in clinical trials um, to find a cure for sickle cell disease. As you said, my son does have sickle cell disease and I pray that, you know, in the next 10 years that we, we get the data that we need from all of the great things that are at play and at work right now on the curative front for sickle cell disease. Um, you know, this is can be life changing. It really can be, you know, it will be life changing. I, I know that it will, because I believe in science and I believe in the power of science and the people 
like yourself who are dedicated to moving the needle forward and improving care for all patients. Before we wrap up, though, I do have one topic that I wanted to talk about, and it almost kind of slipped my mind, but it's very controversial. So when we talked about gene therapy for sickle cell disease, I know everybody probably saw the 2020 special that came on a couple years ago now, and they were talking about using the HIV viral envelope as a means of transporting this new DNA message. So taking into account the history of the hesitancy of people in minority populations to even participate in any type of clinical trial as a result of what happened with the Tuskegee Airmen experiment, we we in the sickle cell community, we were excited because there was a curative therapy on the horizon, but then they had to throw in the fact that it was utilizing the HIV viral envelope. So now people have put up the the stop sign again. It's kind of like, well, if I were interested at first, once I heard that, I'm done. No way. So can you explain to us, like, are they really injecting people with the HIV virus to to transport this new DNA? Can you decipher that myth for us? I'll do my best. Um, It's a very complicated topic. Um, And uh, first and foremost, um, science uh, and medicine uh, have... Uh, some pretty black eyes uh, historically, and you know Tuskegee uh, experiments are probably one of the worst ones. Um, if ever you are going to participate in a clinical trial, and this goes to everybody, um, we have uh, better fail safes in place. Um, so there's uh, institutional review boards. Um, so if you're going to pursue a clinical trial, make sure that it's institutional review board approved. Uh, it's very hard to get a clinical trial that's not insti- uh, institutional review board approved, IRB approved uh, these days. But I mean, it's it's a committee of individuals that will sit there and analyze whether or not the clinical trial is safe, one for the um, you know participants, uh, but also will advance uh, the the science or it's designed to advance the science. So it's protective. Um, that being said, I mean, there's still a lot of work that uh, we need to do uh, within uh, the African-American community to, to reinforce, um, you know, our value within the community. Um, and uh, it's very unfortunate that um, those things happened, uh, but we need to do better. Um, and we are doing better. Back to the question about the HIV virus. So I said retrovirus a couple of times. Uh, that's actually uh, the family of HIV viruses. Um, and it, the the spin uh, that you know 2020 uh, wanted to take, and you know, was reinforced um, by uh, other media uh, and the media from the companies that are building these uh, viral vectors, is that, you know we're taking one of the worst uh, diseases um, in recent history and modifying it and turning it into a positive thing. So they're trying to make a positive negative spin on it, I okay. think. Um, but still, it was you know, if you hear HIV, you know, like. HIV. Um, uh, HIV is HIV. Um, ironically, um, you know, we're actually using that. So the lentiviral ve- vector is a retroviral vector. So the the ability to um, target uh, uh, certain cell types um, requires a, a modifiable uh, virus. And the lentivirus is actually lended to itself much better to um, uh, modification uh, for uh, transfection for cell and gene therapy uh, than a lot of the other viruses out there. I mentioned adenoviruses as well, and adenovirus is just a common cold virus. Um, so it's not very complex. Um, retroviral vectors are much more complex, and you're talking about adding genetic sequences to DNA, so there has to be enough capacity to modify um, the genetic sequence. Uh, so lentiviral vectors, retroviral vectors, which HIV uh, is a family of, um, are uh, a n- an easy choice within science. It's not an easy choice to hear uh, within, uh, uh, you know, the community. Uh, but what we've done is we've actually removed, and by we, I mean, uh, individuals that uh, are in the laboratory have removed the the infectious capability um, of the uh, retroviral vector, the lentiviral vector. So it doesn't actually cause disease. Um, it won't um, replicate itself the same way uh, that an HIV virus will. Um, and then the tools and all the machinery are there uh, to allow us to get inside uh, the, uh, the nucleus, which is where uh, we need to modify the DNA. Uh, and lentiviral vectors are very good at doing that. So um, it is 
reminiscent of the HIV virus, but it is so far from the HIV virus that it's difficult to call it, uh, in my mind, the HIV virus. Um, but it does have notoriety uh, within the media. Um, and I mean, the last thing uh, about that is that, you know, we we can modify the individual. Uh, we can modify the cells with the individual, but, um, you know, this doesn't stop the disease. You can still transmit the disease through um, your uh, uh, gametes. So your, your germ cell lines that, you know, make children. Um, so it's important to know uh, that there is, um, you know, that information within your um, body as well so that you can inform future generations. And you were telling me earlier that you had this partnership with uh, 23andMe, uh, which I think is just fascinating. I was hoping you could touch on yes. that. For everybody, yes, we do. So just, yes, just here recently, we developed a partnership with 23andMe as a means to continue to contribute to the body of science that we currently have in terms of the genetic pool, genetic makeup, and, you know, just knowing what that information is. But we would love to have a cure, but we can't have a cure if we don't know what those genetic sequences and codes are from a multitude of people so that, you know, the, the bigger the pool that we have, the better we are to assemble cures because we have all possible combinations or at least trying to get there that we could. So with our partnership with 23andMe, we are able to provide um, sickle cell trait testing by means of performing the the saliva test that comes in the 23andMe kit. So, you know, there's a lot of that goes on in your in your saliva. Your whole life story is told in a swab of spit. <laughs> yeah. And your family's too, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah, your family and, and everybody else that came before you. Yeah. So in that swab, though, they're able to identify any type of hemoglobinopathy that you may have. And I know you spoke on what the problem in sickle cell disease is that we've got this point mutation in the beta globin gene that's responsible for creating the hemoglobin protein. And depending upon where in the sequence that mutation occurs, it gives rise to the different variations of sickle cell disease that can come to play. So with the test that's performed with 23andMe, we're able to identify not only the sickle S hemoglobinopathy that may be present, but all of the other variants that may also be present. So I think that is a really great benefit that is conferred through doing the 23andMe test. And in addition to identifying your hemoglobinopathies that may be present, we're also able to offer reporting that talks about your ancestral history, so your genealogy. So when we talked about that swab of spit that tells your story and your entire family story, it really does because you are able to identify your ancestral connections as well as any um, health conditions that you may be at risk for because of your genetic makeup. So there are certain conditions that minority populations are at an increased risk for experiencing based upon their genetic makeup. So I think that this partnership with 23andMe will really go a long way in helping the sickle cell community and just, you know, people that are of minority populations in general, even if you don't have sickle cell disease. I think that having that information in your back pocket in terms of what you may be at risk for, for just in general health conditions, it really gives you the ammunition to be preventative in your healthcare and, you know, ultimately prolonging your life and your quality of life. So I think that is a very good um, partnership that we have in play here. And I'm looking forward to how things, again, this is science in the making, to seeing how things will benefit and, and help people in the long run with being equipped and empowered with that information. Yeah. And I, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's data and, and more data um, in the right hands uh, is always beneficial. Right. Um, and what better hands than your own? And, you know, we've talked about making the right decision. I mean, if you have um, the genetic information in your hand that says, you know, your sickle cell disease might be worse uh, than somebody else's sickle cell disease, uh, and you get that from, you know, uh, epidemiologic data and then trending it back towards potential uh, sequences uh, within your, your, your genome, um, then maybe you make that move towards uh, cell and gene therapy, uh, clinical trials, or, or a curative mm -hmm. therapy a little bit sooner uh, because you know what's on the horizon. 
Um, right. So uh, I, I think that's a great partnership. Uh, kudos to you uh, for pursuing it uh, and uh, and getting it. Uh, I think it's going to do a lot of good. Uh, and on top of all the other good that you do, um, it's a, always a pleasure talking to you. Uh, unless we're not wrapping up, I'm happy to talk more, or we can extend this. Uh, no, 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 we're 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 good. I think that we have done a great um, interview today, and I really enjoyed listening to all that you had to share. And you know, for the listeners that are out there that are on the fence or just wanting to know more about curative therapy, I think that you've definitely provided them a non-biased um, background of what's yeah. available. And you know, it's it's all about empowering people. So that's the the premise of. My organization and what we do is educating the people. So at Breaking the Sickle Cell Cycle Foundation, my job as a mom of a child who has sickle cell disease, a pharmacist and a sickle cell disease advocate, my job is to educate, educate people to help them make um, informed healthcare decisions. So I appreciate you and all that you have added to help me fulfill that mission today. <laughs> my pleasure. And, and um, I, I hope I've pursued uh, or encouraged somebody um, in in a similar situation uh, to, to advance the discussion. Uh, I mean, because that's ultimately what it takes. Right. Um, and if your healthcare provider isn't willing to advance the discussion with you, I think it's time to find a new healthcare provider. Um, I'm always available um, to to respond to these uh, to questions. Um, and I'm sure, um, Dr. Scott, you'll uh, share my information. Uh, yeah, yeah, go right ahead. You can you can leave your contact information if there is a an Instagram or Facebook sure. or email, whatever. However, people can get in contact you. You, you have the floor. Uh, yeah, so uh, Kiefer T. So K I E F F E R T zero nine two two at gmail dot com. Um, that's my email address. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Doctor Connect Ted. So uh, Doctor. D-R-C-O-N-N-E-C-T-E-D. So my name's Ted, so connect Ted. So I'm trying to connect all these uh, pathways. So I'm connect Ted. Um, uh, but yeah, feel free to shoot me any messages. Uh, and again, if, uh, you know, uh, uh, healthcare has to be a dialogue. Uh, it has to be ownership um, by the patient. Uh, it has to be owned uh, by the, the treating team as well. So uh, uh Best of luck, everybody out there that's dealing with the disease process and uh, donate when you can uh, for the sickle cell patients out there. Um, they have a very rough road uh, without blood products. Um, uh, there's no cure uh, for um, the sequelae of sickle cell disease, but there is treatment. Um, so if, if somebody gets a, a blood transfusion, lowers their risk of uh, acute chest syndrome, lowers their risk of stroke, um, and, uh, you know, we can you can actually make these people's lives better um, with a transfusion. So please, please donate. All right. And that's a wrap. Thank you everybody for listening and we'll catch you on the next podcast. Bye. Have a great one. The information heard on the podcast gives us so much hope. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the vitamin SC3 podcast. Tune in again next week for a new episode. We hope that you will share this podcast with others and also subscribe. You can head to your favorite podcast player and leave us a review. Reviews help us get new listeners and share the stories of sickle cell warriors and their families.